We are finishing up a little mini-series that we're doing on the creation-evolution debate. And I want to ask you a question. I wonder, why do you believe in the existence of God? What, what convinced you that God is real, he's alive, he's your maker? I'm going to leave some time at the end of my message for several of you to just kind of pop up impromptu and tell the rest of us why you believe that God is real. So you can be thinking about that. Last weekend, I started to give you my three-part rationale for why I believe that God is alive and real and that he's the creator of all things. And uh, today, I want to walk through those some more and then add a fourth reason for why I am a creationist. So you can get that study guide out of your worship folder and follow along. Just to kind of review, my first reason for believing that God created all that is is that the Bible declares creation to be true, doesn't it? The Bible's clear, and I believe the Bible. The very first verse, John quoted a few moments ago. Say it with me. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wherever you want to place the beginning, God was already there, creating. You can flip through the pages of the scriptures, and you'll find that the Bible writers affirm their belief that God created all things. For example, Jeremiah believed in creation. We read in 32.17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The idea is this. If God can create the world, he can do anything. He can heal cancer. He can bring your prodigal child back home. He can save your not-yet-believing parents or grandparents. He can create life in the barren womb. God, do it. Do it. Show yourself strong on behalf of your people, Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and you find a scene in heaven where these living creatures are giving praise to Jesus, and they're crying out in Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, people need to realize, if you deny creation, you deny the Bible. Because the Bible is crystal clear about this. And so I've made my choice. The Bible is for me. I rely on the truth of what this book tells me. I believe that there is a sovereign, powerful, holy, creative, caring God who made everything there is. That's the first plank in my rationale for believing in creation. Now let me mention the second plank. And this one, if I were to say it out loud in like a university classroom, this one would be controversial. I'd get some pushback on this. But I believe it can be supported. Unbiased science, unbiased science, I believe, affirms the probability of a creator. Maybe you hear that and you say, well, are scientists biased? Well, not all scientists. I mentioned to you last weekend this ever-expanding number of scientists who are going public with their dissent from Darwinian evolution. I gave you that website, descentfromdarwin.org, where over 700 scientists and counting have signed off on a statement saying, basically, we, we have doubts that Darwinian evolution can explain the complexity of the universe that we live in. And so not all scientists are biased. Some of them take, you know, go where the evidence leads. But 
there are many, many scientists who come to this issue of origins with a presupposition, with a bias against the supernatural. They hold the presupposition that everything we see must be explained by purely naturalistic, materialistic causes and that anything else is unscientific. And that's a bias. Now, some of them are honest and bold enough to admit that they're, they're biased. For example, a scientist at Kansas State University, Scott Todd, wrote this. Even if all the data points to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Can't have it. Can't go there. Can't go to a supernatural cause. That's not science. So he's defining God out of science, defining supernatural causes right out of science. Another scientist, Richard Lewontin, said, Materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. <laughs> we, we, we can't. We can't let God in. That would be problematic. Dr. George Wall won a Nobel Prize in 1971. Professor Emeritus of Biology at Harvard University. Heard of that place? A pretty prestigious institution. Was quoted in an article in the Scientific American. Here's what he said. There are only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation, he was quoted as saying, that life arose from non-life was scientifically disproven 120 years ago by Louis Pasteur and others. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. So far, so good. Then he commits intellectual suicide in his next phrase. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. <laughs> I can't go there, he's saying. I, I, I can't. And so in some circles there is an admitted bias against a supernatural cause, against a designer, against a God. At least some are admitting it. But what if they join that group of scientists that is willing to remove their bias, to set aside that presupposition and say, well, where does the evidence actually lead us? Where would unbiased scientific observation lead us without the, without the bias? Would it really lead us to conclude that something came from nothing, that life came from non-life, that information came from chaos, that consciousness arose from non-consciousness? Where does the evidence actually lead if you remove the bias against the supernatural? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. Let's start with some evidence from physics. How many of you remember physics? How'd you do in that class? That could be a tough one. Some of you did pretty good, I guess. I love what Lee Strobel says in his book. One of the most striking discoveries of modern science has been that the laws and constants of physics unexpectedly conspire in an extraordinary way to make the universe habitable for life. He says there are more than 30 physical or cosmological parameters that require precise calibration in order to produce a universe that sustains life. In other words, the universe is finely tuned to a razor's edge in a way that defies mere chance and is best explained by the presence of a creator. Picture, 
Picture a series of giant dials in the cosmos, okay? 30 huge dials, okay? Each of them representing a physical parameter in our universe. Those dials could be set at any one of a billion possibilities, a billion possible ranges, but physicists tell us that those dials are set precisely at the exact setting that is needed to sustain life on this earth. Tweak any of them just slightly, and everything goes haywire. Take gravity, for example. How many of you like gravity? Gravity's good. We love gravity. Gravity keeps things from flying apart. Gravity coalesces the planets. If the dial of gravity, that imagine that huge dial, if the gravity dial was tweaked just ever so slightly, just in a fraction from where it is, catastrophe, disaster, human life could not be supported. Take nuclear force, that force, that strong force that binds together the nuclei of atoms. If you were to turn that dial and decrease that force by just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 just a tiny little tweak, everything goes kaflooey. Life could not exist on our planet. If any of those 30 dials were set slightly off from where they have been set, life could not exist. Dr. Vera Kistiakowski, my best shot, a former professor of physics at MIT, put it this way, quote, the exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. Maybe that's why she's a former professor at MIT, making statements like that. She studied physics. She sees the hand of a creator behind all of those dials, setting those parameters just right to sustain life. Let's think about the heavens. Let's go to the world of astronomy. What do we find there? What we find is that numerous factors make our solar system and the Earth's location in the universe, where we fit, just right for a habitable environment. Change anything just slightly, and life becomes impossible. Some science have actually dubbed this the Goldilocks zone, (laughs) where everything is just right. Right. Just right. You live in the Goldilocks zone, and so do I. Think about the Earth's proximity from the sun, just how far we are from the sun. A little bit closer, just a little bit closer, and the oceans boil away, and our planet becomes more like Venus. A little bit further away, and our oceans freeze, destroying life like on Mars. Think about our moon. Our moon is just the right size and distance from the earth to stabilize the earth's orbit. Were it a little bit smaller, earth would likely start to wobble on its axis or the axis would be changed in its angle. Catastrophic for human life on the earth. Think about the presence of the planet Jupiter in our solar system. Jupiter has the exact right size and mass to keep asteroids from plunging into our oceans here on the earth and destroying life. And evolutionists look at all those things and they say, what an incredible stroke of luck for us. Wow, we are so lucky that this happened. 
Or else they postulate that maybe there's millions of universes and we're, we just happen to be the one that all this you know, came into being in. Of course, it's hard to, for them to explain where those millions of universes came from in the first place. The Goldilocks zone also holds true for Earth's position within the Milky Way galaxy, how the planets orbit the sun, the size of the Earth, the amount of our oceans, the oxygen and the heat content. Geologists and astronomers make a case that we live within so many of these narrow Goldilocks zones that if Earth were outside of just one of those narrow bands, we wouldn't be here talking about it. John O'Keefe, a Harvard-educated astrophysicist who works at NASA, says this, if the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate that the universe was created for mankind to live in. Let's move from peering through the telescope to looking into the microscope. What do we find in the worlds of biology and and biochemistry? What do we see there? Perhaps the most intriguing example at that level of complexity and design is the presence of DNA in the human cell. Did you know that your body contains 100 trillion cells? Don't try to count them. It'll take you a long time. 100 trillion cells, and coiled inside every single one of those cells, if you could somehow extract it, is a six-foot-long strand of DNA. Remember DNA? Remember learning about that? DNA contains a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precise assembly instructions for how amino acids form into proteins. DNA contains information. It contains instructions for assembly. Kind of like that motor, that engine I had up here last week, that model engine that came with a set of instructions for assembling it that I gave to a middle school student who pleaded with me to give it to him. And I did, and now he's promised me that once he assembles it, following those step-by-step instructions, that it's going to work and it's going to be cool. Well, DNA is a set of instructions for building proteins out of amino acids. And of course, if you have instructions, you have information. So how did that information get into DNA? At one time, a a very smart scientist thought he could explain all of this by purely chemical processes. His name was Dr. Dean Kenyon. Dr. Kenyon was a professor of cell and molecular biology at San Francisco State College. Back in the late 60s, he and his partner got together and they wrote a textbook. And they thought they had it figured out. The textbook was called Biochemical Predestination, and it was popular in college classrooms for several years. He postulated that amino acids do it themselves. They organize themselves. There's a chemical attraction there. You don't need a designer. You don't need God. But it all it's just chemistry. There are these attractions. And that sounded good to a lot of people. It fit with their worldview, and they figured... Dr. Kenyon's a pretty smart guy, so we'll just believe what he said. Problem was, as science, I was going to say, as science evolved, as science progressed and technology progressed, enabling people to peer more deeply into the cell and find out what was going on in there, Dr. Kenyon himself started to get skeptical about his own theory within a few years. And he's looking at what goes on in the cell 
and that, it's, that basically a cell is a manufacturing plant. And the more he saw of that, within 10 years, he stood up before a group of his colleagues in Dallas and he said, I was wrong. <laughs> I thought I had it figured out, but, but what I see in terms of complexity and design within the human cell is so amazing. And he postulated another theory for how it all came about. I came across this little computer animation I'm going to show you in a video clip here in a moment. And it, and it shows how DNA forms proteins through amino acids in the cell. And then at the end, you'll see Dr. Kenyon himself come on the screen and he'll give you his new, revised, updated hypothesis for how this all came about. So take a look up at the screen. In the years since Kenyon's rejection of chemical evolution, science has revealed the details of an entire system of information processing that bears the hallmarks of intelligent design. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. 
This is absolutely mind-boggling to perceive at this scale of size such a uh, finely tuned um, apparatus, a device that's, uh, that bears the marks of intelligent design and manufacture. And we have the details of an immensely complex molecular realm of genetic information processing. And it's exactly this new realm of molecular genetics where we see the most compelling evidence of design on the Earth. I've seen that video about 10 times now, and uh, I still am stunned and startled by what goes on at the cell level in our bodies. It's a, it's a factory. It's a manufacturing plant complete with an assembly line. And Dr. Kenyon at the end there said, you know, I, I, it bears the marks of intelligent design. You know, in Darwin's defense, he didn't know all that. He lived 150, 160 years ago. They didn't have powerful electron microscopes to be able to look down and see what's going inside the cell. But to think that matter and energy and time and chance produce that? Remember, in evolution, there's no guiding hand. There's no intelligence. It's just natural processes randomly working. Cambridge-educated Stephen Meyer said this, the presence of this type of information in DNA implies an intelligent source. By the way, did you notice all those little molecular machines in the cell that carried out their specific functions? One scientist likened those little machines to a mousetrap, which I just happen to have one here in my pocket. James, why don't you stick your finger there and see if this thing works, okay? Okay. <laughs> It's a very simple machine. It's a, you know, the guy said a mousetrap has five parts to it. Take away any of those parts, and you don't catch fewer mice. You catch no mice. <laughs> All five parts of the mousetrap must be present and in the exact right relationship to each other for it to work. And this guy said, you know, the, the, the even vastly more complex molecular machines like we just saw, scientists, evolutionary scientists, stumble all over themselves trying to explain how a working machine came into being through the processes of natural selection. The precursor system must already work for natural selection to somehow improve upon it through a mutation. You know, Darwin himself once wrote this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then my theory would absolutely break down. And it has. Biochemist Michael Behe summed it up this way. He said, my conclusion is, is summed up in a single word, design. I say that based on science, not on religion, not on faith, but on science. I believe that irreducibly complex systems are strong evidence of a purposeful, intentional design by an intelligent agent. <laughs> so I believe this. I believe that science done right, unbiased science, actually affirms the probability that all that is came into being through a designer. I believe that. My third reason for believing in a creator kind of piggybacks on that, and that is this, that Darwinian evolution fails to adequately explain the universe. 
as a model, as a hypothesis for explaining the origin of the universe and the origin of life, Darwinism just doesn't cut it. Number one, it doesn't adequately explain the presence of complexity, like what we just saw, or take the human eye, for example. Consider how effectively and cooperatively the lens and the retina and the brain all work together. Is the eye the result of random chance or intelligent design? Even Darwin himself, in his book, Origin of Species, wrote this. To suppose that the eye, with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Yeah, it does seem absurd, because it is absurd. You know, one of the, in my mind, one of the problems of evolution is that Evolution leaves us with nothing or no one greater than ourselves to praise. When you see the, the complexity of molecular design and what goes on in the cell or the human eyeball or when you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and just being overwhelmed by the expanse of it and the majesty of it or at Niagara Falls or if someday I'm ever able to see the northern lights, take that trip to Alaska and see the heavens convulsing like a huge lava lamp and and if you're standing there and you believe in evolution, what do you say? Praise you, natural selection. I worship you, random chance. Yesterday I was riding my cycle up to Blendon Woods, and uh, of course it was a beautiful, gorgeous day, and the leaves and the kaleidoscope of color there. And, and you know what I said? I didn't say you know, praise you, random chance. I said, praise you, Jesus. You are so awesome, so creative, so marvelous, so powerful. Isn't there something in the human soul that yearns for someone greater than ourselves to worship and praise? But in evolution, we're it. We're the, as far as it's gotten. Evolution doesn't leave us with anyone greater than ourselves to praise and worship for what we see in terms of the complexity and design and just the wonder and beauty of the world. It doesn't adequately account for the fossil record. I don't have time to get into it, but Darwin felt that, I mean, he basically said, over the next 150 years, you'll find that the fossil record confirms my theory of natural selection. Well, what have we found? One guy said, what we find is that the overall fossil record has stubbornly refused to confirm the grandest claims of Darwinian transitions. Now, no one disputes microevolution, that slight you know, variations occur within species. That's not controversial. But the grandest claims of natural selection are that over time, random mutations turned fish into amphibians, amphibians into reptiles, reptiles into mammals and birds, and so forth. What does the fossil record show? Michael Denton, in his book, Evolution, a Theory in Crisis, said that despite innumerable discoveries since Darwin's day, the intermediate forms have remained as elusive as ever. By the way, if you've not yet been down to the Creation Museum, down just below Cincinnati by the airport down there, it's worth it. It's worth the day trip. It's worth the money you'll spend down there. The, the displays and things and programs at the Creation Museum explain this so much better than I'm doing today. And, uh, of course, there's a website, right, creationmuseum.org. It is fantastic. You ought to go, especially if you have young children. 
Darwinian evolution, number three, doesn't adequately explain how the second law of thermodynamics is overcome. Do you know what the second law of thermodynamics is? It says that things, this is in layman's terms, okay, things tend to go from order to chaos. Like your teenager's room, it would be an example of the second law of thermodynamics played out right in front of your eyes. Over time, things tend to go from a state of order and being organized to a state of disorder or chaos. The second law is the law of increasing entropy. It states that energy can never be destroyed, but continually becomes less available for further work as it unravels. However, the evolutionist claims that things are going the other direction. Like things started out chaotic, and there was just this primordial scum and stuff, and then things happened, and, and now we have us, and what we've seen, and the universe, and... So, so-called scientific evolution stands in violation of one of the staple laws of science. Number four, evolution doesn't account for what we're doing right now. It cannot adequately account for consciousness. If the universe began with just dead matter, which has no consciousness, then how do you get something totally different? Thinking, feeling, believing, assessing, evaluating like we're doing right now. How does consciousness come from non-consciousness? How does that come about in natural selection? Nobel Prize winning neurophysiologist John Eccles concluded from the evidence that there is what we might call a supernatural origin of my unique self-conscious mind. (laughs) And number five, natural selection, Darwinian evolution, does not account for the presence of morality. Of morality. Why is it that human beings seem to have this innate sense of rightness and wrongness? Where did that come from? You know, even the evolutionist gets upset when someone cuts him off on the freeway. Hey, that's wrong. Or when someone breaks into his car and steals his stereo, he jumps up and down and says, that's wrong, that's evil. And I want to say, what do you mean evil? What do you mean wrong? In evolution, where do you get morality like that? Maybe that thief felt like that was going to enhance his chances of survival to steal your stereo out of your car. Where does morality come from? Romans 2.15 says the law of God is written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness. Basically says our creator has inscribed his moral law on the hearts of his creation. That's where it comes from. I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that Darwinian evolution as a model for explaining origins is woefully inadequate. It fails to offer a satisfying explanation for what we see all around us, what we see in the heavens, what we see through a microscope, and what we see when we look inside of us. But you know what? I I have a reason beyond those scientific and academic things for believing that God created us and that he exists. And it's not scientific, it's not academic, it's very personal. I believe that God exists and that he is real and that he made everything. I believe that because I've experienced him, like personally. I've experienced God, have you? I've had moments in my life where I knew that I knew that I knew that God was near me. Going back 30 years to when I was in that 
accident when, when a drunk driver hopped the median and hit my car and killed everybody else in that, in that accident. And I walked away and I sensed that voice saying, it's going to be okay, i got a plan for your life. I mean, you could push aside the academic scientific evidence. I would believe in God anyway because I've experienced Him in my life. I felt his touch. I felt his presence. There have been times where I know he was speaking to my heart. I know it. There have been times where I was smitten with conviction in my heart because of my sin. How does natural selection explain that? I've had times in this room with you all in worship where the presence of God descended upon this place like a cloud. And it's like, God, you are, you are there. I know you're there. I can, with my spiritual senses, I know you're here. At some point, it's got to get personal, doesn't it? (laughs) And I wanted to finish up our time today by giving some of you the opportunity to just kind of stand up where you're at and in a few sentences, just share with the rest of our 11 o'clock congregation why it is that you have become convinced that God is alive and that he's real and he created you. What situations, what circumstances have you been through? We've heard some amazing things already this weekend from breast cancer survivors and you know, just incredible things. So I'd like to give you that opportunity right now. We've got some folks with mics who are going to rove around through the room. And if you can do it in just a couple of sentences, that'll allow maybe five or six people to, to be able to speak. But just, if you'd like to give testimony to why it is that you believe that God is real, would you just lift your hand right now? And uh, we've got Don right up here in the front. We've got some folks on this side over here. So we'll start, let's start over here. How about uh, this couple right here? Um, I was involved in a very terrible car accident. Um, I believe it was 1991. And in that car accident, there was a stone truck that pulled out in front. It was full of stone and uh, pulled out of a quarry. And my brother-in-law was driving, and we had seven people in a Toyota. We never should have had that many people in a small Toyota car. But... Anyway, I had my son on my lap, and he was only like two years old, not even two. Yeah, he wasn't even two. Anyway, he was on my lap, and he was strapped in. I was sharing the seatbelt with him, which is a big no-no you never do. And But that morning, I'd had a wonderful, quiet time with God, and it was the day before my birthday. And um, But anyway, I really felt like God was definitely with me. Um, because of that wonderful quiet time I'd had around the head seat, because I was in the back seat. So I looked around the, the head seat that was in front of me, and I saw we were going to hit. There was, God said, put your hands down and don't hold on to Micah, my son. So I put my hands down. He said, put your head back. And I put my head back against the headrest, and I never felt us hit, never heard us hit, never saw us hit. And after it was all done, paramedics in the emergency room and everybody kept saying why is your son okay there should be terrible terrible things wrong with him because we hit that at 50 miles an hour we hit that truck and um, they kept asking and I kept saying I don't know he was strapped in and they said that if nothing else he should have abdominal injuries really severe abdominal injuries because of the way I strapped him in on my lap and but it's a miracle because God told me, put your hands down, don't hold on to him, put your head back, close your eyes. And I did everything that God said, and it was wonderful. Wow. 
Praise God. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else over here? Yeah, I think um, probably the biggest thing is, is I think Steve already touched on it in the teaching this morning, though, but you, you just can't explain. I mean, science, when you look at intelligence, I mean, that's what science is, is just looking at intelligence. I mean, the fact that it's intelligence, that it's looking at itself, shows that God is there to me. But what made it more personal for me is, is again, what he was saying, There's, you've got the physical realm that you're in, but what happens about the emotional realm? Where'd that come from? And then what happens about the spiritual realm, the things in your life, like what happened to my wife? And I mean, we've got stories in our lives that could go on and on, but I won't. But those are the things you can't answer. Science cannot answer that. And here's a real quick example. When I was in college and I was doing an experiment, and this just really nailed it for me. I was working on a NASA project about apical dominancy and plants in the moon, and we were working on that and to send it up to the moon. The problem I got was is that all the data that we were doing and the research we were doing depended upon me, and I was something that was infallible, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not infallible. When I got up that morning, did I do the experiment right because I was ticked off at somebody? Did my emotions affect that? Everything affects everything. And God created it that way. So you can't do an experiment scientifically without some sort of emotion or spiritual. Those are three other three things. You're only using one, intelligence, and thinking that it's working, and it doesn't. And it just nailed it for me that, you know, that yearning inside of me just says, you know, why do I seek God? Why do I seek something extra? Because I was created that way. It's, it's in me. It's in that DNA. It's in me. That's why we seek. Amen. Well, let's take someone over here. Dawn? Is this okay? It's on? Because right, I can't stand up. Um, Steve told me not to ramble, so I, I have so many things why I believe God exists. But I have had the experience of feeling life move in me three times. And then I had the experience of holding God's image in my hands, perfectly and wonderfully made. The, like you said, the eyes, toenails, you know, the little tiny toenails. I mean, everything just wonderfully made. And the second, another one is that I have sat by the bedside of a man who could not move because his back was in so much pain. He just absolutely could not move. I called some friends over. They came. They prayed. And not even thinking about it, the man got up and showed them to the door when it was time to leave. <laughs> I mean, that is God. Yeah. Also, my, I saw my 68-year-old brother who was dying of brain cancer, who my, my 95-year-old mother had been praying for all her life. And she was still alive. And always asking everybody, she said, please pray for Robert. He needs to know Jesus. Len had an opportunity to lead my brother to the Lord on his deathbed. And now he's in heaven with my mom. My mom died four days after my brother did because I think 
God said to her, okay, Margie, it's time to come to heaven. Robert's here, and her work on earth was done. And then I got to take my glasses off because I'm crying, sorry. You know, I know that God exists because there is no way a big bang could make the trees change in the fall, make the blind see, the deaf hear, or the lame walk. I believe. We've got time for a couple more. Just a couple more quick ones. What, uh, what convinced you and made it all personal for you that God exists? How about right down here? There's too many uh, actual life experiences that you can go on and dribble and shoot and say, oh, you had all the things that happened to you in your life at my ripe old age of 60. Uh, but lo- nothing else. I should have worn my boots, my rain hat, and my coat this morning because the Holy Spirit was actually coming down in bucket loads this morning here. And I could feel that from the minute the music started. And you can always tell. I mean, I, I normally don't feel as though, wow, some great movement is taking place. But I have to admit this morning, uh, I felt as though God's hand was here and there were a lot of people that you normally wouldn't see raising their hands. And people don't raise their hands just for the heck of it. They raise their hands because they can feel God's touch on them. And certainly this morning, this indeed was the place to be in Columbus, Ohio, if you you were a, a person that said, you know, I don't know if God's real or not. Today was the place to be, and I am glad and thankful that I was part of it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Do one, one more. I apologize to you folks out on the wings out here. I've kind of focused on this area. Uh, hello. Hey, how y'all doing? Um, it's kind of crazy because I'm just touching on what he just said. Well, first of all, you know, I've been out here three weeks, okay? I moved here from Chicago, and... The life I was living, it, it got me in a whole lot of bad situations, you know, in and out of prison, things of that nature. And I said this time, I was like, um, you know, if I get out, you know, I'm grown. That That's more than just advancing in age, you know. And I had to stop and look at myself and realize that. And I was like, just let me get out and some way, somehow to get my life together. And just me making it out of prison, period, with all the drama and all the things that's involved in that, that let me know, okay, it might be something, you know, it might be a God out there, but at the same time, uh, maybe I just did the right thing. So I come out here, and with me being the ex-felon and everything, and I'm like, it's going to be hard to find a job, it's going to be hard to get my life together, hard to pick up the pieces and keep moving. So my mom, my mother, and my father, my whole family, they real, you know, church-going, God-fearing people. And it just never clicked with me. But my mother told me, she said, baby, just get out and pray for it. Pray on it. It's going to work out. Hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? But that night, I just, I did, but I didn't. It was like. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm here, okay. Uh, help me, uh, whatever. 
So the next day, I'm taking uh, my niece to get a Halloween costume, right? And I meet this young lady right here who happened to be working there. We talked. She told me about a job opportunity out there. It's going to take a while for me to get back at you. Ah, whatever. But I did it anyway just so I could say I did it, you know? Lo and behold, the other day they called me back, and this was like four or five days ago, and I just recently got hired. So that let me know it is a chance for people like me. So that's okay, cool. Uh, maybe. Maybe I just was in the right place at the right time. So once again, I called my friend, and she's like, well, I'm going to church tomorrow. Do you want to go? <laughs> no. Uh, I don't see it happening. It's just, no, no, no. You take Ray Charles or somebody. Maybe they can see it. I can't. Uh, so we fought, right? Literally, back and forth, tooth and nail. Well, why don't you want to go to church? Because it's not for me. Uh, how do you know if it's not for you? Because I've never been to church, so how do you know if it's for you? Uh, whatever. So, whatever, you know. She kind of gave me an ultimatum out of this world. Look, either come to church or you won't get home. I'm in church. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I come and I'm standing here, and the first thing I said, like five minutes in, give me your keys. I'm going to go wait out in the car. I'm not feeling this. So, yeah. Church people even give you your hey! money back when you drop it. <laughs> I'm put that Bentley on layaway. So, uh, I'm standing here, and he said, you know, if you feel in a certain way or whatever, just raise your hand and people come. Yeah, whatever. But I'm like, maybe it's something to it. So I raised my hand, and I was surrounded by some of the most beautiful people on the inside and out I've ever seen in my entire 27 years of existence. Mm. And they prayed over me, and I was like, okay, cool. But, like, somewhere halfway through it, I can't describe it. It's like... Hmm. You know when you see that person that you just really, really, really love, and just the sound of their voice, just thinking of them, just send a chill down your spine. It's kind of how I felt. I was like, man, it might be cold in here, but it's not. I don't know what it was, but it made me feel real good about myself. And I'm not finna sit up here and per portray something I'm not to you guys. It's my first time in church, okay, and. Whatever that feeling was, pray to God I never lose it, you know? Yeah. yeah. name, brother? Jeff? Let's bow our heads in prayer, can we? And from where you sit there, would you just express gratefulness to God for who he is and what he does in people's lives? Church, he's real. He's real. Push all that scientific evidence and stuff aside as, as valid as it is. He is real. So many of us have experienced him. Jeff experienced the touch of God this morning. 
And Lord, my prayer for this congregation right now is that each and every person here would get to know you in a real way so they would know that they know that they know that they know that you exist, that you're alive, that you're real, and that you love us. Lord, you proved it when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the life we couldn't live, die the death we could never die, and pay for our sins, rise from the dead. You demonstrated your love for us in that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, may Jeff and and many dozens of others in this room come to a fuller, deeper understanding of just how real real you are and how much you love us. May it become personal for every person in this room. Thank you for this study. Thank you for what you've taught us from your word and just from creation as we look around. Lord, may we walk out of this place with a strong God confidence that this world was ordered, was designed by a creator God who didn't walk away from it all, but is interested in each and every one of us. Thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we offer up our praise to you once again this morning, for it's in your precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. How about uh, thanking God one more time for just how good he is? Yeah. Thank you.